When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a new podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. I'm one of your hosts, Arthi Vade. John Plotz is my co-host, and you'll be hearing from him in other episodes. If this is your first time tuning in, you're probably wondering what this podcast is all about. Well, Novel Dialogue invites a novelist and a literary critic to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, write them, publish them, and remember them. We hope to bring you, our listeners, lively, sophisticated dialogues that dissect the art of novel writing and consider the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about our world. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogue on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is a great pleasure to welcome critic Olka Anjaria and novelist Madhuri Vijay to the show today. Olka is professor of English at Brandeis University and the author of a terrific recent book called Reading India Now, all about contemporary Indian fiction and pop culture. Madhuri has written one of the most absorbing novels I have read in a long time. It is called The Far Field, and it's amazingly accomplished given that it is unbelievably a first novel. It follows a young woman, Shalini, traveling from Bangalore to Kashmir in the wake of her mother's death, and slowly learning about the sectarian conflicts in Kashmir by spending time with a series of memorable hosts. Madhuri won the prestigious JCB Prize for Literature for this novel and is joining us today from Hawaii, which gives me two very different yet equally compelling reasons to be jealous of her. Okay, with that said, I hand the virtual mic over to Olka. Thank you so much, Arti, and thank you, um, Madhuri, for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have you. Uh, I read The Far Field a few months ago during my pandemic reading spurt and um, just loved it really from the first page. Um, I just found it so refreshing, something really different um, coming out of India. And um, I'm teaching a class on the Indian novel next semester, so I immediately like scrapped the syllabus I had, put your novel first, um, and actually... First, I think significantly because as a kind of framing for the whole class and some of the questions I want the students to answer. So I'm incredibly um, honored that you accepted our invitation to uh, join us here today and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, so I think you're gonna begin by reading a short passage from the novel. Yes, that's right. Uh, but first I'd like to say thank you so much, Ilka, for, um, and Arti for inviting me on this podcast. It's a rare opportunity, as you said, for uh, writers to talk to the people who talk about books. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, and I also want to apologize in advance to your students <laughs> for next semester. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you. Thank you both. So I, I'm just going to read 
the first section of the far field. I am 30 years old, and that is nothing. I know what this sounds like, and I hesitate to begin with something so obvious, but let me say it anyway at the risk of sounding naive. And let it stand alongside this. Six years ago, a man I knew vanished from his home in the mountains. He vanished in part because of me, because of certain things I said, but also things I did not have until now, the courage to say. So you see, there is nothing to be gained by pretending to a wisdom I do not possess. What I am, what I was, and what I have done, all of these will become clear soon enough. This country, already ancient when I was born in 1982, has changed every instant I've been alive. Titanic events have ripped it apart year after year, each time rearranging it along slightly different scenes, and I have been touched by none of it. Prime ministers assassinated, peasant guerrillas waging war in emerald jungles, fields cracking under the iron heel of a drought, nuclear bombs cratering the wide desert floor, lethal gases blasting from pipes and into 10,000 lungs, mobs crashing against mobs and always coming away bloody. Consider this, even now, at this very moment, there are people huddled in a room somewhere waiting to die. This is what I have told myself for the last six years. Each time I have had the urge to speak, it will make no difference in the end. But lately the urge has turned into something else, something with sharper edges, which sticks under the ribs and makes it dangerous to breathe. So let me be clear here at the start. If I do speak, if I do tell what happened six years ago in that village in the mountains, a village so small it appears only on military maps, it will not be for reasons of nobility. The chance for nobility is over. Even this story or confession or whatever it turns out to be is too late. Wow, thank you so much. That's such a great, it's such a great opening. And I think sets the stage for some of the issues that I think this book is very much about. Um, I mean, it's a mystery. Like when you open that, you know, there's things that we don't know about the character. It's also a political novel, which you allude to in this indirect way. And um, as, you, as if the reader would read a few paragraphs more, find out that it's a novel about a, a woman and her fraught relationship with her mother. So I was interested in all of these three kind of themes and styles. Is there, in terms of political novel or kind of a personal novel, is there, is there one that you felt was more important when you were writing or do you feel like the whole point is the intertwining of these different strands? Exactly that. I felt the whole point was the intertwining um, and that any attempt to uh, disentangle them would be false and um, a kind of violence. Uh, it has always struck me as an extraordinary thing that we can be both so uh, such private, personal, intimate creatures while at the same time um, you know, 
dealing with and dealing with and interacting with and learning about uh, huge geopolitical events. The book is set partly in Kashmir, and it's very much set in the middle of political events happening regarding the occupation. I mean, I know you're asked this a lot in interviews, is this a, a novel about the political situation? And what is your novel? How is your novel a political novel? So, and I feel like in, in the past interviews, you've said a little bit, you resisted a little bit that overtaking of your novel just by this kind of political question. Why is that the case? And can you speak to that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it would be a mistake to, um, just as I think it would be a mistake to reduce the novel, any novel to a purely political commentary, I think it would be a mistake uh, to reduce the character that I'm writing about. And often, you know, people, when people ask me about the novel, they particularly ask me about her, this woman Shalini who travels from Bangalore to Kashmir in search of this man and gets caught up in all of these political uh, currents. She is often, um, termed as a sort of a uh, symbol of privilege, a symbol of naivete, a symbol of being sheltered and a symbol of ignorance. Um, and she is all of those things, but I think it would be an incredible uh, disservice to uh, forget that she is also a person, um, well, a character in this case, but she, that she is also uh, a private individual who has, um, certain deprivations in her past, who has certain uh, joys and sorrows and losses and all the myriad things that make us who we are. And I notice this more and more, even in the way that we talk about people today, especially having gone through, uh, you know, having watched the US election play out the way it did. It was interesting that people were so often, you know, uh, talked about in terms of their um, political affiliations, their race, their gender, and, and, and they were sort of expected to act in a way that conform, conformed um, with the expectations one has of that political block. Um, whereas, of course, each of those people is a person. And uh, it's, it's, and in some way, therefore, they are unknowable. And that's why I push back against Shalini being termed just a, a you know, an upper class, a, you know, a woman uh, with a certain amount of money and a certain, um, uh, you know, a, a, a defined in terms of her geographic um, origin. Uh, she is all of those things, yes, but there is also something about her that is uh, unknowable and mysterious. And therefore, I think somewhat sacred and it's the same thing that exists in all of us um, and so my my resistance to the novel um, as a, as a sort of political commentary is rises in part because of that because I think it also flattens the human beings involved um, Can I in it. on that question yeah I was so struck by the way you had this little split between person and character mm. and I think too that the reason people love novels is because you relate to characters as though they're people you know. And critics sometimes try to help students or readers understand all the artwork that goes into making a character feel like a person. But it sounds like in your mind, when you're thinking about Shalini, she, is she a person first and a character second? Or how does that 
work for a novelist who has to sort of craft the thing that they then forget is a craft almost and becomes like another person? That's a good question. I, I think I, I'm not entirely sure. I think that it, you do tend to forget that there is a difference uh, between the person and the character. And certainly when I was writing, you know, they felt very real to me. You know, it's funny, I, I began writing this novel, what, uh, tw you know, seven, eight years ago now. And at that time, the, the, the conversation about quote unquote privilege had not arrived at the point where it is right now. And so I wasn't, I didn't think of that word even. And with all its connotations, I wasn't thinking of her as quote unquote, a privileged person. Um, I was, so yes, and I'm answering this very badly, but I think now when we read uh, a book like the one I wrote, you, you, we tend to immediately use that, that lens of privilege and um, uh, savior narratives and all of that. We have all these you know, little phrases that we can immediately tag onto it. But at the time I was writing, I simply thought about how it was possible that you could have two people on different sides of the country living such extraordinarily different lives and what on earth would happen if you just brought them into the same room with one another? I was thinking of it purely in terms of human um, interaction and human compatibility and human misunderstanding and incomprehension. Um, I was thinking of it, yes, I was thinking of it in terms of imbalance of power. Um, and I knew that in some way she would be incapable of uh, transcending not only her uh, societal constraints, her class and what have you, but also certain psychological barriers that she had co constructed around herself or that had been constructed around her because of her family and other factors. Um, but I did, not, I did not have these academic intellectual terms um, you know, bouncing around in my head. And to be honest, there is a, a little, I feel a little bit of a sense of loss when I, you know, when somebody talks about, and here again, I'm talking, you know, going back to the, the one of the original questions you asked were um, about reducing this novel to a political novel. Um, to me, the, the joy of the novel is simply the joy of human interaction. Uh, and, you know, I've thought about this a lot, about what the particular pleasure of a novel is as opposed to a movie or as opposed to, a, um, you know, a video game, I suppose. But I think it is, for me at least, the pleasure of watching the granular uh, shift in human uh, thought and emotion and feeling as an interaction progresses. And, 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 and that was my entire... Uh, focus when I was writing. I, I really wanted to know and to watch how, she, how, her, f how her mind and understanding shifted with each person she met, with each interaction she had with that person. I love that you pointed out 
how novels compare to other genres, especially younger genres like video games and film. Um, I was just thinking, this is almost a question for Olka because she's the critic on the show, but of your voice inside of Indian literature and like who we would think of as perhaps in the genealogy that led to Madhuri Vijay, who would we think of, you know? And I wouldn't think of Rushdie or Roy who are much louder novelists in, in the way that they use language and the way that they move in, uh, in a kind of experimental way at the level of the sentence, the word, the reference, the allusion. It feels noisier and, and your novel felt so quiet and beautiful to me, but also deeply gripping for its quietness, like a sudden like a sudden detail would just have this incredible impact where Shalini's orientation just shifts in response to a situation. And so I was wondering, Oka, if you think that there are writers who didn't quite make it to US shores with the same kind of successes of Rushdie or Roy, but who you would see as in the same tradition of writing. Yeah, I mean, uh, Definitely. I think that there is a kind of that that is, um, as you said, louder, um, more, more flashy. And I think that that did appeal to. Um, so I, you know, like, I've been reading a lot of Isma Chugtai, this Urdu novelist and short story writer, who I think um, is is one of those people. And I think, you know, like, she's a, a writer writing, you know, she's a, a Muslim woman. So again, could be very easily slotted into certain kinds of kinds of expectations about what kinds of things she has to write. And she's always breaking expectations um, and writing stories that refuse, I mean, to, to be not only um, put in a kind of political moment, like she's writing at the time of partition, but doesn't write about partition at all. Um, she's much more interested in the inner life of, of you know, of women and um, messy things like, sexuality and queer desire and things that, you know, just were not legible at all. And I think she's someone who's really been kind of written out of the tradition of, of you know, like Indian literature, which is, has, which I think has been the, the public facing part of it, the part that writes about big things like partition or the emergency um, often get more, get to be more important. And again, I think because you chose Madhuri to write about Kashmir, people want to put you in that slot, but I actually would put you much more in the tradition of, of Isma Chugtai. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. I, you know, I, I th when I think about it, I, it seems to me that there is an Indian novel in which the, the writer seems, this, the writer acts as a sort of guide uh, through a world, through the world of India. And Rushdi falls very much into that category, I think, uh, where he is um, sort of encapsulating the nation and translating the nation as a as an entity as a whole uh, for the reader, and that you know, and, and that explains uh, his popularity because um, you know because because in some ways his novels uh, are, are kind of a map, but someone like Ismat Chuktai is not explaining. She's not acting as a sort of as a as a guide for a reader who is perhaps outside of the of the country. I was and I was aware that I didn't want Shalini to be a sort of a guide to you know the non-Indian reader. Um, 
rather I wanted her to be a guide in some ways to an Indian reader uh, because it is sort of a fallacy that Indians know everything about India, that there is Indian and not Indian. To me, that was, it was just simply not true because I, um, I don't know about Kashmir. I didn't know about Kashmir before I went there. I didn't, I don't know. I know very little about Assam. I know very little about, my God, I, I mean, I grew up in Karnataka, but I know very little about, you know, Andhra Pradesh. I know, it's, so um, to me, it was more interesting to have a more inward uh, facing gaze that rendered what is generally supposed to be my territory as alien um, and it is alien. Uh, so, so yes, that, that was exactly what I wanted to, what I wanted to do. Uh, but you're right, because it is Kashmir, it tends to be um, perceived more as a kind of, uh, here is a grand statement. I want to talk a little bit about writing process and things as well. I mean, another repeated question that I've seen in a lot of or several of the interviews that I saw um, read with you is like, is Shalini a fictionalized version of you? Which like I sense some annoyance when you were had to answer those questions. Um, my 13 year old son is also a budding writer and he um, he just wrote this short story about this. 14 year old boy. He said, I changed that age 14 so that he would think it was me. But the, of course, the, the teacher still said, Oh, this is clearly you. Right. It just felt it was so, and I, you know, I told him about your, the interviews you had. It just feels, felt to him like such a stifling of creativity to just assume that, you know, anyone that is at all mildly at all like you just has to be a version of you. Is that, is that how you feel? Or how do you, how do you, deal with that idea of you're writing someone kind of that could be close to you, but clearly isn't you. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of perplexed by it, honestly, um, by the, the need to, by the need to ask the question and even more by the need to know, uh, say that it was me, say that it is me, say that I did every one of those things. I mean, what, what earthly difference could it make to you? You know, what, how, other than a sort of sense of titillation, um, other than the, of the, the pure prurience of, you know, you know, scandal or, you know, whatever you imagine <laughs> my scandalous life to be, what, uh, what, what difference does it make? I've never really understood the need to, uh, the need to investigate a novel um, that way. And I was lucky maybe because I grew up uh, at a time when uh, the novels that I read weren't even accompanied for the most part by author pictures. You know, I, I, I barely had the sense that the people who were writing the books were real human beings. You know, I thought they came down from some godly realm and they just sort of appeared in, in my library. Uh, but I think, I, I think it's a strange, it's a strange way to read a book and and quite limiting um, because it suggests that your criteria for um, for what you consider worthy are uh, somewhat somewhat stifled um, and so you know you you ask me if I find it stifling I I do that I find that question stifling uh, but it must be stifling 
to the reader as well. I mean, it, how could it not be? When you're writing, how do you write characters with whom you share more characteristics personally? And then you have Amina, Riaz, Bashir. You have a range of characters who are, you know, who, who come from a place, um, you know, with its own language. I don't know if you know Kashmiri, but like you're writing about, you know, and, it, and a kind of culturally, politically, economically different than Shalini. Do you, um, do you enjoy equally the project of, of expanding and constructing these different characters? Um, or, is there, or is there some part of characterization? Because your characters are wonderful. They're, they're, um, they live beyond the page. I, I feel like I know them. And that partly comes from, I think, a really impressive use of dialogue. Um, and, but, but yeah, I'm just wondering, like, what is your, do you enjoy that process of characterization? I would guess you do from what I read, but I'm just <laughs> curious hearing it from your angle. I really do. Um, and thank you for saying that. I always thought I was rubbish at dialogue, actually. Um, but I'm glad to hear you disagree. Um, Definitely disagree. <laughs> it's so much fun. For me, it's just the, the, most, the most pleasure I get in writing is watching uh, characters develop. And I haven't been doing it long enough to know for certain, to be able to sort of ex ex explicate it um, but what I, what I have come to think that it is, um, is it, it's, it's um, a kind of, uh, it's mostly throwing stuff against a wall and seeing what sticks. Um, I, when I wrote the first draft, I would just have people say and do all kinds of wild things um, that were totally inconsistent with what turned out to be their character. But it became clear that these things were in fact inconsistent. And then in other cases, I would have them do things that felt right. And so I would have to then expand the character to include that tendency or those characteristics. And that gave me a whole nother room to play in, so to speak. Um, so it was really a process of experimentation and um, mistakes and just wild, um, uh, you know, just, just wild writing for a, for a long time. Uh, but the interesting thing was that as the drafts progressed, I could see the contours taking shape around each of these people to the point where towards the end when I was writing, when I would begin writing again, I could feel my vocabulary changing because Shalini had a certain vocabulary. She tended to favor certain sentence, certain you know sentence constructions. She liked certain words more than others, and I could feel those words and those constructions and those tones coming out. Um, in the same way, when I wrote Riaz's dialogue or Riaz's gestures. I could feel the same, you know, I could feel him favoring certain gestures and um, facial expressions and what, what have you. Uh, it, was, it was a really interesting uh, uh, process for me. And um, that, that really was one of the things I enjoyed most. Uh, so yes, I really, I do like making characters, making people, uh, whether or not they're anything like me.
What about influences? Do you have um, other writers you love? Are there writers you read while you're writing? Um, or just a, a, a novel that you love? So many uh, writers and novels that I love that it would be a little bit, um, it would take a little too much of your time. Uh, I, I tend to find that whatever I'm reading happens, it, it's, it's a very odd phenomenon and makes me um, mystical in a way that I am usually not mystical. Uh, but I tend to find that whatever I happen to be reading, whether it's um, you know, fiction or nonfiction, uh, gives me something, something valuable for whatever I happen to be working on at the time. And maybe it's just a sort of form of confirmation bias. I tend to see what I'm working on in whatever I'm reading at the time. Um, so I don't, you know, I know certain people, certain writers like to read only certain things while they're working on uh, a book, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm far more of a magpie. Um, I have always loved the writing of Isma Chuktai, you know, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I have loved Alice Munro and GM Katsir, Baldwin, uh, Zadie Smith, I, the, the list is really endless. Um, I, don't, I don't consider myself to have any particular influence, a singular influence. Um, Anita Desai, I think, is another one of those writers um, in, like Isma Chugtai, who, uh, while seeming to write about very uh, closeted, private, minuscule worlds, is actually writing um, very capacious and ambitious um, novels. Um, and so she has been, I would say, as close to a particular influence as I have had, um, but, and many, many more, of course. Yeah, that's great. And Anita Desai, also someone who's been kind of left out of the, you know, that kind of global understanding of, of the Indian novel. Um, uh, I did want to ask you one question about the mother-daughter relationship before we get to our final question, um, because I found it to be a very, like, beautiful, but also frustrating, um, you know, part of the novel. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you did it really well. I think there's an assumption sometimes that mother-daughter relationships are always great, like they're friends, you know, and I don't know if that comes from you know, Bollywood or something, but like there is this idea that, but I think it, it's actually global. I think in India it's there, but it, it, again, another reason I like Isma Chugtai because she always has a problematic relationship with her, with her mother or mother figures. So just tell us a little bit about that relationship was that, you know, it gives Shalini another dimension and again, cannot be reduced to some political novel. The mother that I was writing about uh, began in some ways as someone who was just, she was mere, she was just sad, you know, in the, when I first started writing. Um, but as the, as time went on, she started becoming a little more um, unpredictable and a little more eccentric and a little funnier and a little wilder. Um, and every time she did that, the book became more interesting and Shalini became more interesting to me. Um, I don't know that I have a particular interest in mothers and daughters. Uh, I, I certainly think of them, I mean, I have an interest in the relationship insofar as it is one of the most important relationships for any human being. 
um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just as interested in fathers and daughters and, you know, brothers and sisters. Uh, I also do, you know, I think that there is a tendency, especially now, perhaps in pushing back against what you, you talked about, uh, you know, about the mother and daughter relationship being perceived as sacred in some way. Uh, there is the sort of, there is, I think, a slow growing tradition of mothers who are incredibly bad <laughs> and, you know, sort of monstrous and um, who have monstrous thoughts and, you know, then the, and their bodies are horrors to them and so on and so forth. And, and I, and I understand that, uh, but I never want a Chalini's mother to be that kind of mother uh, where she was so, appalled by her motherhood that she was just, um, you know, that she was just sort of uh, grotesque. I never wanted her to be grotesque. I'm not interested in the grotesque. I'm interested in this wild swinging between affection and disaffection and uh, tenderness and the need to be alone and I had a child about a year ago, and it's it's been an interesting uh, literary experiment because there is sort of sacred aspect to it where you can't quite believe that this is a real thing. Um, but something that isn't often written about in literature in mother and daughter relationships is just the silliness of it, you know, the pure, the pure absurdity of motherhood, you know, the, the random farting and, you know, the sort of, um, there isn't as much capacity in literature for the purely joyous and absurd as there seems to be for the tragic and the grotesque. Um, and, I wish even that I had included more silliness in the book, in, in this relationship and not merely had it be so heavy all the time because both of those things exist at the same time, often in the same moment. Um, and I'm sure there are people who've written about motherhood in exactly that way and I haven't read them and I ought to, uh, but the, it, it was the wild, duality the polarity of it that that um, I wanted to include and that I now know uh, that I now know to be the case because everything is not a damn metaphor and that's the problem, <laughs> exactly. that's the problem. And I we're having a conversation with novelists and I blame critics for this we're completely <laughs> at fault for taking every single thing that people want to write and making it into a metaphor for something else. And sometimes, sometimes a fart is just a fart. A fart is just a fart. And you know, I think and I think that's the danger with motherhood too. Yeah. That's why I actually think your example of Ammu in The God of Small Things, she's she's um, you know, she's a she's a bad mother. She's she's also like a metaphor. So I guess that's why I was thinking that yours is and that's why I said like she's it's more uncomfortable because it's just more real and it doesn't feel like a metaphor, it doesn't feel like a you know, it, it just feels like a real relationship that's hard um, in a way that I think, you know, sometimes even the, as you say, even the cruel or grotesque mothers feel like they stand in for kind of something else, loss, abandonment. 
So um, now I, I know what the trailer for this podcast will look like. How far is this part? Yeah. Madhuri, thanks so much. We've taken, I've taken so much of your time. You've been so generous with your answers. There is one final question that um, we're asking in all of these novel dialogue um, podcasts, which has to do with, again, something not, something mundane and not metaphorical. <laughs> Just what is your favorite treat that you like to, give yourself while you're writing, you know, what, what do you do or play or eat when you're struggling with what's on the page? What's something not metaphorical about oh. yourself? That's very easy. Uh, it's a big bag of potato chips. I, I really love potato chips. And um, whenever anything is hard, not just the book, but I, I, I can be consoled with, uh, with potato chips. And are you a standard potato chips? Um, no, there's a, there's like a particular flavors? potato uh, chip flavor here. It's called, um, uh, what's it called? Maui onion, something oh. like that. It's, it's, a, it's it, I only see, I've only ever seen it here, um, but that's my, that's my preferred brand. <laughs> that sounds awesome. We're just going to have to assemble like a pandemic comfort foods. Right. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Well, Thank you so much. Really. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's a really fantastic book and you're, I mean, it's very exciting and congratulations on its success too. It's very well-deserved. Thank you both. And thank you so much, Oka and uh, Aarti. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it was a delight. And as we approach the end of another novel dialogue, John and I would just like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, Mellon Connected PhD program and Duke University. Nye Kim is our production intern and designer and Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. Recent and upcoming dialogues include Bruce Robbins speaking with Orhan Pamuk, Martin Puckner with Catherine Lacey, and Jerry Canavan with sci-fi writer Cameron Hurley, author of The Light Brigade and The Geek Feminist Revolution. So from all of us here at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening and hope you hit that subscribe button and tune in again soon.